Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. You are very welcome to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast from Virgin Media News. I am political correspondent Gavin Riley, joined in studio by news correspondents Richard Chambers. Richard, hello. Gav. And by Zara King. Zara, hello. Hi, Gav. Uh, a lot of news to get through this week, so we'll dive straight into it. Obviously, the biggest domestic story is probably the, the budget uh, announced on Tuesday, and we will get to that uh, in short order, but it's not the biggest story of the week on a global scale. That's obviously ongoing events in the Middle East and Israel threatening to lay a full siege to Gaza, which could result in a pretty enormous humanitarian consequences for the population there. Uh, before we came on, we spoke to our colleague in Virgin Media News, our anchor, Colette Fitzpatrick. As it happens, Colette was only in Gaza uh, within the last six weeks trying to document some work by UNICEF, the UN's Children's Fund, some of the humanitarian work they did there. So before we came on air today, we spoke to Colette and we started by asking her to go through exactly what she'd seen when she was there. Yeah, so Gavin, basically about last April or May, um, I made contact with UNICEF, the children's charity, which is part of the UN, and we wanted to have a look at the programmes they were operating in the West Bank and Gaza. Now, by the time we got there, it was late August and things had become quite unstable in the West Bank. There were a number of rogue killings, Palestinian militants against Israeli civilians in the West Bank. And had we uh, thought about going on the trip at that stage, I think we probably wouldn't have done it because things had gotten a little bit tense. Uh, so it took a couple of months to organise the visas, uh, get sorted in terms of press passes. And when you tell anyone you're going to Israel, whether it's Israel um, and then onto the occupied territories, West Bank and the Gaza Strip, they'll say to you, oh, the Israelis will be watching you. They are the world leaders when it comes to surveillance and technologies. Uh, they'll know everything you're doing who you're meeting with, where you're going. So that was always in the back of our minds. It was this kind of, they know where we are. They know what we're doing. They, they're very, very uptight about their security. So I guess when what happened last weekend happened, that's why it was such a huge shock to everybody. Because mm. it is so striking that all this would happen when Israel is such a, a militarised and fortified country. The idea that this could happen without somebody spotting in advance is kind of hard to fathom. Yeah, and, and I guess the fact that we were going into the Gaza Strip. Now, the Gaza Strip, as you know, um, it's been blockaded since 2005. So that means there's really restricted movement when it comes to goods and people in and out of it. It's a tiny, tiny little bit of land. I mean, if you think about the size of County Louth, in square miles, it's about half the size of County Louth, but there's 140,000 people living in County Louth. There's 2.2 million Palestinians living in that area. So they're literally crammed into that tiny area. And um, there's essentially three checkpoints to get in there. You have the Israeli side, that's at Herez. We saw that overrun by the Hamas militants at the yeah. weekend. Uh, then you go through the Palestinian Authority checkpoint and then you're sort of waved on by Hamas, which are governing the Gaza Strip since 2007. Now, we were in a UN vehicle, so that's a diplomatic vehicle, so it made it easier for us. But the, the tiny amount of Palestinians that would be crossing that border, and I mean, I say border, I mean, when we think of a border up the north and you can cross it, you know, you'd be going across a boreen mm. and suddenly you're actually yeah. technically... Some, yeah. Somebody stops and talks to you, but that, that's the full extent of it. Oh yeah, yeah, this is a massive, 
militarised fortified zone uh, with surveillance everywhere in the air. You have cameras watching you. You have um, steel wire all around the edge. Actually, when we were driving towards Jerez, a a massive big balloon up in the sky, I said to one of our colleagues, uh, will I take out my camera? I'll just, absolutely no way. Don't take out the camera. Will I take out the phone? If you take out the phone, they will know the serial number of your iPhone. They have biometrics up there. They'll know exactly what Mm. you're doing. So there was, it was actually, it was really frustrating as a journalist and for our camera operator not to be able to film what we wanted to film. Yeah. But we were told so often you've got to be really careful. Everyone is monitoring everyone. And it's not just Israelis monitoring people coming in and out of the Gaza Strip. And um, Once we were in the Gaza Strip, people would say to us, we're not really sure who those guys are. Those guys might be Hamas. We better move on. We don't know who those people are. Now, the Gaza Strip itself, um, you've seen the pictures, really urban, very built up, very high rise. But Hamas have built installations, training grounds all over, tunnels in and out of Egypt, in and out of Israel. So when the Israelis say we're talking about targeted airstrikes, they may well Mm. be targeted, but you're talking about really built up areas. Mm. I mean, think of that, 2.2 million Palestinians in this tiny piece of land. So you'd be walking around. We were at a health centre, for example, at one stage. And someone said, uh, don't look around there, but that's an installation there. We were filming at a water plant. Water is a big problem. Um, obviously, mm. the Gaza Strip is in permanent humanitarian mm-hmm. crisis. Mm. Um, access to clean water, very difficult. UNICEF had built this water plant there. Don't film, don't turn around the camera that way. There's an installation. So this is the kind of thing you would be told all the time. So this, this, there was a real air, even at that point, five weeks ago of suspicion and who's who and people watching us Mm. and perhaps people telling others, what are they doing here? That's very interesting because obviously when you're planning something like what we saw happen over last weekend, there's weeks and weeks and weeks of planning Mm. into Mm. it. So I'm sure people, if they were involved with Hamas, would have been uber paranoid about anybody who is unfamiliar to them being around, coming around to vehicles, pointing cameras at things. So do you feel that there was perhaps an air of suspicion around you? If people were planning to do something like this, anybody who's an outsider becomes something which is a bit of a worry. Yeah, absolutely, Richard. I mean, yes, we were in a UN vehicle. Yes, we were with UN staff and we were independent journalists there to document UNICEF programmes. but it's happened before, not just in places like the Gaza Strip. It's happened where people have gone in, gone in undercover with aid agencies. Yeah. So there is always this air of suspicion. Just in, just in terms of what life is like or was yeah. like there when we were there uh, five weeks ago. So we were staying in a hotel. Now, when I say a hotel, everything is very run down. I mean, this is a place where there's extreme deprivation, poverty, major sanitation problems. I mean, that urban skyline actually down on the low level, it's not... Unlike an Indian slum, there's piles of rubbish everywhere. There's dirty sewage mm. flowing into the streets. And yet it's on the, on, on the Mediterranean coastline, this beautiful view mm. when, when you look out towards the sea. Um, but real economic problems, you know, most of the people who live there, I think 50 percent of the population is actually under the age of 18. Mm. High unemployment and all the different problems that come with that. If you were 15 years of age before what had happened last weekend, you would have already been through five escalations in violence in the Gaza Strip. So like post-traumatic stress, um, a severe mental health crisis really amongst young people there, amongst everyone there. And, And just... I mean, just living on top of each other, not having a job and and limited access to everything. The Gaza Strip being blockaded means really severe restriction on goods as well as people coming in and out. Mm -hmm. So, for example, medicines, 
anything that's considered, they call it dual use. Mm. So electronics or medicines that could potentially be used as part of bomb making or in any sort of weaponization, severe restrictions. So the health service is in permanent crisis there. So even access to to basic facilities is very difficult for everybody who's living there. Now, perhaps if you uh, were a Palestinian family and you had a child who had a cancer diagnosis, for example, there is the potential or the possibility in limited circumstances that you might get treatment in Tel Aviv, that after multiple background checks and they have, they're completely happy with it, there is no one in your wider family four and five times out that is in any sort of a watch list you might get out. But many children won't make it that far because the background checks take so long. Mm. So, I mean, the, the, the country, like... The, uh, sorry, sorry. Well, it's because when they categorise as an open-air prison, that's exactly what, what you're outlining yeah. there. It is an open-air prison in so many ways. Most they are Palestinians haven't there. met an Israeli. You think about it, most Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip haven't met an Israeli person. Yeah. Think about it like that. So how can they even begin to understand one another when they've never even met? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, people often say, you know, what sort of support then does Hamas have in the Gaza Strip, Mm. the Palestinian support? There's all sorts of surveys going back years, well before what happened last weekend and anywhere between 40 and 60% of support. Um, But I think we all know that not all Palestinians Mm. support Hamas Mm. and not all Palestinians support what happened there at the, at the weekend. Um, but the Palestinian people themselves, God, they're the most beautiful people. Now, we, we went to see health centres. We went to see um, schools. We spoke to young girls, young girls who have dreams like yeah. you and I did, Sarah. I remember Sarah, that, of course, yeah. When, you know, yeah. we spoke to, you know, kind of girls you could see nearly on the Late Late Toy Show, you know, real <laughs> yeah. power yeah. vibe yeah. off them. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be a businesswoman. I want to go to college. Yeah. I want to be a, a doctor. And you're looking at them going, God, what are the chances uh. of this happening? It may possibly happen here for you in the Gaza Strip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are the chances of you ever making it out of here? I never remember having that same reflection. I was in the West Bank about two weeks after you were in Gaza. And one of the things that we saw was a secondary school that was partly funded by the Irish government when it was setting up. And to see the whole line of vocations that those girls were being trained in and the aspirations that they had mm-hmm. and the sense that they might have been attainable where they were now because they were in the West Bank, relatively peaceful with slightly more normalised relations versus what that would be like if they were on the Strip on the other side of Israel mm-hmm. and, and how limited that would be. Mm-hmm. When you see everything that's happened over the weekend, you talk about the girls you met and all the people, the wonderful people you'd have met in Gaza over that time. And now you see, you know, Israeli politicians describing people in Gaza as human animals. Uh, You see, you know, the total siege declared. We're shutting off water, power, everything, no food going in or out. You must really worry about some of those people that you met because you see, you've already seen footage, Netanyahu's been tweeting out video of airstrikes, which... Again, as you say, you bomb anything in that area, you're, hit, you're landing bombs on top of thousands of people. Yeah, there was a town we went to, Richard, it was called Shijaya, right? It's a couple of miles to the east of Gaza City and just a few miles from the front line with the Israeli border. So it's particularly damaged in terms of um, destroyed buildings and bullet ridden walls. And they had a trauma centre there, right? Um, because the kids there... And the people there had seen so much violence and seen so many escalations of violence. So you had little kids sitting around in a circle um, processing what they'd been through, processing what they'd seen and sort of kind of looking off into the middle distance, you know, and you'd be wondering, what is it they saw firsthand? They Mm -hmm. saw an awful lot of violence. Mm. 
they saw their towns being destroyed. They've had family members who've been killed, family members who've been maimed. And then in a room in the same building, their mums were there talking about how to deal with their children who had been through so much and were being taught how to deal with children who had become a bit aggressive because they had seen, they didn't know what, they were acting out. You know the way kids yeah. act out, anyone acts out if they've been through um, trauma. So we interviewed them, we spoke to them, we spoke to people around the region and that's right on the front line, this town called Shajaya. And I'm wondering now, and I don't know, and I'm sure our camera operator Conan Doyle was wondering the same thing. Is that now on the front line? Has that been hit? Where are the people we met? Where are the people who, the psychologists who were helping the kids, where are the kids? Um, and I don't know. I don't know. And, what, and crucially, where are the kids who are using that service and what trauma have they been confronted with in, just in the last week alone? Claire? Yeah, just... and thinking about what's to come. Yeah, mm -hmm. That's, I think, you know, that's the way we're all feeling. What's to come, you know, with this buildup of tanks and the Israelis saying there's going to be this huge, massive response. What is to come? Um, what is your, your takeaway impression then of the whole thing? Obviously, you know, you went there on a journalistic job. You went there to try and document some of the programs that are on. The programs are obviously invaluable for those who are living in such poor conditions. What was your overall takeaway feeling as you went wheels up and came home? What was in your mind? Um, at the time, we found it being perfectly honest, very frustrating that we weren't able to film and document as yeah. much as we wanted. Mm. Looking back now, I realise that was for very good reason, that things had become unstable, certainly in the West Bank. And certainly people who were on the ground knew something was afoot. I was completely shocked, like the rest of the world, when I saw what unfolded last weekend, particularly given because when you tell people you're going, as I said, you know, it's the Israelis know everything. They're very uptight about their security. Um, you know, they're sort of living in an existential crisis because of their past and because, you know, they believe so many people want to wipe them out. Yeah. So I, I was I, I was completely shocked by what happened. Um, I'm really genuinely worried, like everybody else is, for what is going to happen there. I mean, the death toll um, we're well into the thousands at this stage on, on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, but to make the point that Palestinian people themselves, I know so many Palestinian people that we met do not support Hamas, do not support what happened there and do not agree with what happened there. And they just want to be able to live their lives. Mm -hmm. They just want to be able to come and go like everyone else. They just want to be able to... And, and you know, like, like life does go on in these places at night time. People, it was really hot when we were there, it was around 40 degrees. So people come out and socialise at night time. So they come out and they're playing cards on the sea. Kids are running around. There was a girl getting married when we were, were you know, life goes on and everyone tries to make the most of their life and eke out a living in these places. And I think, I think it's just as simple as that. People want to be able to come and go and have autonomy over their own lives and choices about what they do, what they become and where they go. A huge thank you to Colette Fitzpatrick for uh, speaking to mm -hmm. us uh, earlier on uh, before we started recording this afternoon to talk about uh, what she'd seen. Um, it's fair to say, guys, I think that we've all been almost inundated this week uh, with questions about what's going on in the Middle East, people who are genuinely just a little perplexed as to 
um, how we got to this point. Just before we address some of those, uh, your reflections, Zara, on what you heard from uh, Colette. Like Colette had obviously told us a little bit when we were in the newsroom, but we hadn't gotten into such an in-depth chat about what she had seen. And just to kind of, even just to hear the account when she talks about, you know, that trauma centre, like these are the lived realities of people in the Gaza Strip. This is the lived reality of raising children in that kind of environment and trying to, you know, teach them how to cope in a war zone. And then, you know, as Colette said, to, to not know now if that, that trauma centre, that support network even exists anymore or if the children who were attending that service oh. have been re-traumatised oh. in, in the last couple of days. Um, you know, Colette and Conan's work from, from Gaza was incredible at the time, but even just to hear it now in the context of what we know now, it's just, it really brings it home, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think it's, 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 it's very difficult almost to listen to Colette's stories about, you know, people who are just caught up and just by accident of birth mm. live in Gaza uh, as it is and to hear how life is like for them it is impossible not to think about how for every single one of them their life will never be the same again mm. just by virtue of the fact that you're on a 2.5 mile long piece of land which is being bombed it is now uh, under total siege and it will be for indefinitely yeah. for this period of time to come so everybody that she spoke to and everybody that she was talking about there will be hugely, hugely mm. impacted by what's happening. Which is a very useful primer on which to start when we're talking about the events of the last couple of days because it's a really good useful reminder about how dire the situation was in Gaza already. And we should probably say that when we're talking about the events of the last week, this is such an entrenched conflict that some of what we might say or some of the rationale that we might try to give in answering people's questions will probably not be to everyone's tastes because some people will have sympathies to one side more than the other. But the nature of trying to get to the bottom of this is that you're you're going to try and give what you think is a fair take and it isn't Yeah and I think with the best of intentions you're trying to offer balance as much as is possible yeah. in terms of both sides Just I know you I want to touch us on your own journey Gavin, yeah. because obviously you had visited Israel then as you mentioned when we were chatting to Colette there mm. kind of two weeks after Colette came back you know what was it like for you at that time making that journey and, and what was did you experience a lot of the similar sort of security were you up yeah. against a lot of the similar it, things that in, Colette in truth about? no uh, oh. because when we were travelling as part of a, a media delegation alongside a, a visiting foreign minister as we were because we were going with the Taunus to Michal Martin it's a very different experience because you have Israeli security uh, you know uh, cordoning you everywhere you go so basically you are, you are waved through doors you are waved through a lot of the border checks your experience is very different in fact we didn't even have to apply for visas because we supplied our details to the Department of Foreign Affairs and then they took care of all of the mechanics. So the experience is very different. Mm. One thing which I was actually very struck by when I went there, I wasn't in Gaza. So I was in Ramallah, which is the administrative capital of the West Bank. It's on the opposite side of Israel entirely. But you are so conditioned from seeing the footage of Gaza and the humanitarian catastrophe that it is on a daily basis that when you arrive in Ramallah, you expect to see something akin to that. And I was actually just very struck by how much like any other um, Mediterranean or Eastern European capital that it was. There was people sitting out in the open air at coffee bars. There were Coca-Cola vending machines. There was a microbrewery beside a restaurant that we were staying in for a little while. They were advertising Oktoberfest with their own internal beers. It's a very normalised standard. And that's not to say that it's without its flaws or that there is total peace between themselves and the Israelis on the mm-hmm. other side of the checkpoints in Jerusalem but it's a very different experience to what those have uh, in Gaza on the other side. And I suppose, Richard, it's that humanitarian aspect of Gaza which makes all of this so unsettling because to some degree, not that it excuses anything that's gone on, but it kind of does set the scene for why those in Gaza and those who purport to represent them act the way that they do. Yeah, and what we've seen over the past, like the biggest question I've gotten from people is why did this happen now? So everybody understands this has been a long, long, long conflict in the Middle East. Um, 
you know, surrounding Israel, surrounding the West Bank, surrounding Gaza. And as I say again, 25 miles long of Gaza with 2.5 million people in it, as you heard from Colette. Again, half of them are children. Yeah. Half of them are children in Gaza. It's the youngest population anywhere in the world. It's also the densest population anywhere in the world. But what we've seen in the past eight, nine months, as Colette was saying, is that there's an Israeli government led by Netanyahu. It is the most right-wing coalition you'll ever see mm. in Israel. It is paranoid about security. Obviously, they'll say, well, that's justified now, given what they've seen over the weekend. Yeah. But what you've seen was a, an escalation in violence and an escalation in provocations. People might have seen occasional headlines around violence around the Al-Aqsa Mosque, mm. uh, which is perhaps the, you know, the most revered holy site for Palestinians in Jerusalem. So there was often Israeli incursions there. Yeah. 227 people have been killed by Israeli forces between January and September. So all of this was ratcheting up, ratcheting up under this coalition. You're seeing some um, shootings on the Palestinian side from militants there of Israeli citizens. And all of this was just pressure cooker building up, building up, building up, building up, building up. Mm. And something had to give at some point. Does that explain then the question though of of why now? What, what's happened in the last week or is that just boiling point? Well, I think that there was a, there's a feeling and actually it's been expressed by Palestinian people for much of the last two years is that they felt they were going nowhere in terms of negotiations. The Palestinian Authority was losing a lot of respect from a lot of people who are Palestinian. They didn't think that there was anything coming from Abbas in terms of any breakthroughs with an Israeli government who they saw as entrenched in their position. Mm. So Hamas has obviously exploited this position. They've exploited this situation where if, if, if Palestinian people felt there's nothing being achieved here, we're asking for the same thing which the mm. world said we would get back in the early 90s yeah. and it's still not happening. Well, then Hamas will take advantage of this situation, attack people at a music festival, attack people people in kibbutzes and in, in towns along near the border near Gaza. And it has really escalated to a point where you're seeing footage of JCBs knocking down that border fence. One of the most, again, militarised, technologically mm-hmm. advanced. They've mm-hmm. upgraded this Probably wall. Probably the most high-tech fence in the world. Completely, yeah. 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 It is. Their sensors underground. They have yeah. satellites up there, again, monitoring your phones. This is incredible this happened incredible in the most shocking sense of the word but this all was just a pressure cooker which has now been exploited by Hamas and if you're looking at well what's the aim of this the aim of this is to draw Israel into a conflict with people in Gaza so there you know it it, it basically puts it as it's Israel versus Palestine not Israel versus Hamas Mm -hmm. and it's very difficult for anybody to sort of see the situation bombardment and a total siege of Gaza as anything which could result in anything other than Israel versus Palestinians I think it was interesting to listen to some of the security experts that have been commentating on this throughout the week though about the fact that um, as you mentioned because there's so much surveillance the fact that it could even happen and some people talk about the fact that there are people within Hamas that there may be a new generation of people within Hamas that you know were plotting and planning this and that there were some people within Hamas who came as a shock to them as well Mm. you know that I thought in itself was quite shocking yeah. actually that you know even within Hamas that there wasn't uh, communication that the people weren't totally clear that this was going to happen yeah. it came as a shock to some some of those key figures as well There's actually a good question that's thrown up by that about referring to Hamas and that is to what degree is Hamas the Palestinian mm. government or the or the government of the West Bank and and that's a a very difficult question to disentangle because yes the last time there were elections most which was 2006 Six, yeah. like it's a mm. long time ago the, most of the, the residents of the West Bank at that time voted for Hamas. Hamas has obviously a political wing as, as well as a militant wing and they voted for Hamas and Hamas has, en- has ended up being the sole authority in the West Bank itself since 2007. In Gaza. Or in, in Gaza, excuse me, yeah. yes. Um, which does, and I don't want to go, off on too, or to, to go off on too much of a tangent here, but there is a bigger question. You know, when we talk about a two-state solution and we want there to be 
two internationally respected states living side by side. Palestinian politics is dead. Like the, the last time there was a Palestinian presidential election was 2005. So Yasser Arafat dies in 2004. They have an election for a new president in 2005. Mahmoud Abbas gets elected. It's a four-year term. They've never had an election to replace him. And he's just been there in now into the 18th or 19th year of a four-year term. They elected their parliament where Hamas won most of the seats in the West Bank and Fatah, which is Abbas's and Yasser Arafat's party, won most of the seats in the West Bank. That was 2006. Again, a four-year term. But they've never been able to renew that, which means that everyone, no matter how much support they might have, and you can poll people about how they feel, no one in Palestine truly has any sense of real legitimacy because no one's got a mandate to do anything. Mm. Now, they will tell you that they find it very difficult to organise new elections because they need a certain amount of Israeli cooperation to do that because obviously you need to have people travelling from the West Bank to Gaza and vice versa. You need elected politicians to be able to go and they can't do that. But it's very difficult for the world to deal in the Middle East and to try and organise a two-state solution when you're not totally sure if the Palestinians you're talking to have a mandate to represent their people. And that's very tricky. But then when we look at it then from the Israeli perspective, what's the flip side of that? Well, the Israeli perspective would be that they've seen the events of the last couple of days and they would say that it's now impossible to live peacefully side by side for as long as certainly as as, uh, Hamas are in charge of the West Bank. Uh, And this this is what we've seen. This is why the the rhetoric around the events of last weekend being the Israeli 9-11 is is so devastating because Mm -hmm. they will say, well, if it's impossible for us to live peacefully alongside these people, then our only way to survive is to eliminate the threat. And depending on how hardline you are in the Israeli position, that means eliminating Hamas or basically eliminating the entire Gaza Strip and having its population dispersed elsewhere. Neither of which is a very happy ending, but that's that's what we could be looking at. The situation then in Gaza as of um, time of recording is that the um, power plant in Gaza is now out of fuel. So it's going to be a very long and dark period of time in Gaza uh, for the time ahead in in many respects. The international reaction to this has been so interesting because it's been so fragmented and it's very different to what's happened in other tragedies because there are sensitivities and there are different allegiances. Europe's response to this, I think, was one of the most interesting things is that the EU very much obviously came out straight away Mm. after the uh, terror attacks by Hamas over the weekend and said, we're solidarity, we stand with Israel. That was the message from Leo Varadkar and Micheál Martin. But as time moves on and you start to see strikes back by Israel, which has ended up, you know, targeting a refugee camp, there have been entire families have been wiped out in bombs which have been dropped on um, apartment blocks in Gaza, etc. Mm. Is that there's been a pushback from Europe but there isn't, unifi- there isn't a unified European response at this mm, point in yeah. time. There is the European commissioner, who's a Hungarian individual, who came up and said, we are stopping aid to mm. Palestine, which is an extraordinarily, because of the political situations you're spelling out there, mm. because of what Hamas did, mm-hmm. you're ending aid yeah. to Palestine. You're, you're punishing civilians. 80, because of 80% what of people did. in Palestine are completely dependent on international aid. Mm-hmm. Like you can't, li- Palestine cannot live and people in Gaza cannot live mm. if it isn't for European aid because Europe is the biggest yeah. aid donor to Palestine. But the Irish reaction to this was absolutely 
furious because we we talk about you know we even talked a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the trip it's like what's Ireland doing mm. here Ireland is sort of seen internationally as probably one of the least indifferent and that's probably the strongest way I can say it, the least that's indifferent a very to the Palestinian way of putting it yeah the least indifferent yeah. to the Palestinian plight uh, is the Irish government alongside the Danes who are also as well and the Nordics as yeah. well would be would be quite on that page as well when the Hungarian ambassador just basically sent out a tweet saying we're stopping yeah. this there was fury in Ivy there, House there wasn't approval by the way from the rest of the European Commission yeah. and there wasn't approved by the European Council or member states or MEPs it was a solar run solar run and then there was beyond, also, beyond his powers by the way yeah. and on that same day there was reports in Middle Eastern media and it was carried in the Israeli press that Ireland had refused to endorse an EU statement uh, which would have described Hamas as a terrorist organisation and again more fury from Ireland's side I've never seen mm. people I know in the Department mm. of Foreign Affairs as furious as they've been over the last week because of first of all the solar run but then second of all the fact that they were described by the Israeli yeah. press as being somehow sympathetic to, to Hamas mm. um, so what's happened is actually Ireland has been very much centred in the European response in terms of we're not stopping aid to Palestine. I was out there earlier on, we'll talk about it in a bit because for other reasons, budget-wise, it's overly of Radcar. People were stopping him, asking him, why are we stopping our aid to Palestine? And he's mm. like, we're not oh. doing that. He held back, he bit his tongue almost literally when I was uh, describing that European commissioner. Um, so it's very, very interesting. The media response, I think, actually is going to be is something which I'm you know, you see it at a, at a distance in Ireland because I think we have a pretty decent read of things, I think, mm-hmm. generally speaking. But you see the, the, the coverage, I was actually quite shocked. The UK papers today, i.e. Wednesday, in terms of coverage of, you know, again, horrendous things. Mm-hmm. And there's no need for any equivocation totally on this. Yes. Horrendous, horrendous, things. horrendous things were happening. There was a, a, a reports carried um, and they were blurred all over social media as well about uh, the beheading of babies, which is something which has not been verified. There are enough horrors which have been committed over this weekend mm-hmm. without publishing but, on the front page of multiple newspapers mm-hmm. unverified information. But that's this, this is the world we live in. And then also using the word unverified as if that made it okay to publish that. It's absolutely wild. I mean, it was, it's journalistic malpractice as well. It is. Yeah. And there is one more final because we need to move on at this point. There is one final concern which is that if there is to be uh, disruptions to electricity supplies and by the way internet connectivity in Gaza as well it's going to be harder and harder to actually get the truth out of what's going on on that side of the border and if we're talking about an impending humanitarian catastrophe as well as the loss of Israeli civilian lives as well if we can't get any information from the ground then we're in a bad shape. Yeah, absolutely. And just would, I would like to add to that as well to spare a thought for the families, the people who remain missing in all of yeah, this absolutely. because they are the ones who have no answers. And, you know, in some cases, families are hoping that their loved one has in some cases been abducted because they have some chance of getting them home. But there are grave concerns for individuals who are missing in all of this at the moment. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
the other major news story of the week is obviously the unveiling, formally at least, of the budget 2024 measures. I say formally because it's not like everything wasn't telegraphed a, a good couple of days or weeks in advance. Uh, during the outbreak, Richard, you said you had the ideal way to cover this in a succinct way or to at least to address it on the podcast. Go I on. think Let we, it go. We, we talked so much about what was in the budget before it happened, right? And uh, not, not I just, the, sorry to interrupt you, but Richard and I were sitting in a coffee shop yesterday watching the budget and he was like, we already know all of this. I'm yeah. so sick of this already. Yeah. Well, that's, that's fair. When I you made an yeah. you already know it. From chatting yeah. to so many other our, our colleagues, like yeah. we, we'd been reporting for weeks what was in it and yeah. then it all came out and there wasn't a huge amount of surprise. But the job now for the government is to sell it. Because we had talked about it actually when we described it last week that it was it was it was the giveaway budget that wasn't a giveaway. Yes. Um but obviously I've never seen such a concerted effort by the various social media teams of Finnegal, mm. Fianna Fáil, let's all the Greens, haven't really seen much from them, mm. um, to really just ramp up their coverage well, of it. To that end, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, and on Wednesday morning you were out with Leo Varadkar, who was out on something of a canvas trying to sell the budget message to the fine people of North Inner City. Yeah, and I mean, you can't turn on the television uh, or the radio without hearing various finance ministers. They obviously turned down our request to appear on the podcast, mm. clearly. But uh, we're <laughs> out and about I was at uh, Mayor yeah, I was put out there by the way for the record Mayor Square uh, in uh, Dublin's uh, IFSC uh, we got a press notification that Leo Radker was going to be meeting commuters to chat about budget 2024 and what it means for them so obviously I rocked up at this and my uh, camera operator Owen Kelly was there as well uh, but obviously there was a lot of other cameras and most of them weren't from the press they were from the Fine Gael social media team who were documenting this you had a various amount of different ministers and TDs and senators who were all there mm. to, to, to take part in the canvas now when I say a canvas normally a canvas would take a good 40 minutes to an hour of, of you know either knocking on doors or handing out well, leaflets wouldn't it also be usually election oriented which, which is a question we might get back to because, you know, when you're canvassing, you'd usually be trying to encourage support for something rather than just telling people what's already happening. Yeah, I suppose so. But but I suppose there was only about 10 minutes of actual canvassing, which actually really took place here. Uh, this is all documented, though, um, and all very much. It was all for the intention of putting out a video at the end. We met, met commuters and we, we chatted them about how the budget will give them a thousand the euro back. But that didn't happen. OK, they don't there wasn't, the okay. there, there, there was only a couple of really meaningful discussions, as I said, a couple of people asked Leo Varadkar about aid for Palestine. Mm. But there was one man who stopped uh, Leo Varadkar and he said, you didn't go far enough. And he spelled out his situation. They have three kids, son's sick at the moment. And between, you know, the cost of GP care, uh, they aren't getting, um, you know, back to school allowances and whatnot. He described himself very much as being in the squeeze middle. But he was like, I know you're trying to do this and that and the other. Very polite, very, very uh, generous and courteous in how he was conducting the conversation with Leo Varadkar. Mm -hmm. But he's just like, you just didn't go far enough. And I think that's going to be a very difficult message or difficult notion for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael to actually okay. shake off. Without making that guy a case study, I imagine Leo Varadkar's response to that man is, well, you got tax cuts of around 800, uh, 800 euro per year. So did your partner. You're going to get a triple uh, double payment of child benefits. That's worth 420 quid. If you've got a kid in junior cycle, they're getting free school books. So all in all, you guys are about two grand better off. Well, he did something like that, uh, Gav. Again, he didn't really know the situation or he didn't start personal circumstances. So he was responding very much on the hoof as yeah, well. Yeah. But like you would have heard as well, the traditional budget phone in as well. Yeah. People with their own situations are just kind of feeling, and I'm sure the feedback that you've gotten, Zara, yeah, yeah. feedback you've gotten, Gavin, has yeah. been people are, some people are actually, in fairness, I actually will say that some people have put out a, an ask box about, you know, what they think about the budget. A lot of people are quite happy with it. Mm. A lot of people are quite happy with the tax um, changes. They're quite happy with... Um, the yeah, bonus payments in terms yeah. of welfare. But again, it's mm. not 
it's not earth-shattering stuff at a time when we've seen before international things can make a real mess of your plans domestically. Yeah. And the biggest messes that we have here domestically are health and housing. Yeah. Well, I would have said, yeah, because like yesterday I was in Bose Wells where all the interest groups were gathering and I, like the main takeaway I would say is that it's a little bit for everyone but not enough for anyone. Yeah. You know, yeah. that was kind of it and everyone sort of felt shortchanged basically. And it's that I, like, you're never going to please everyone and everyone knows that but I think the main takeaway from a lot of the groups is that um, you're in a situation where double child benefit payments, double welfare payments, they're all, you know, little bonuses along the way, the but it's still yeah, not. not structural. The, the yeah. main problem that people have in a cost of living crisis is budgeting over a 12 month period, a two year period, trying to plan for the future, trying to figure out where is their life going? Can they afford to put a bit of money away for a mortgage? Mm-hmm. Can they afford to heat or eat this week? Like they're the real questions that people are actually asking themselves. So, you know, the little bonuses, of course, people are going to be delighted when they land in, in their account or they get them. I'm like, yeah. that's great. But a lot of people would say as well that like, you know, they come in, they get you out of hole, a, a hole for a couple of weeks and you end up back to square one again. So, you know, don't get me wrong, most welcome, but it's not giving people an opportunity to actually structure and shape their lives in a way that is going to make meaningful change for them. And that's the biggest problem. Yeah, I can tell you, there was some emotional roller coaster in our house on Monday night when I got word that the 25% cut yeah, childcare yeah. costs had been delivered and then 15 minutes later to discover that it's it wasn't being delivered months. for another 11 months. So I was there trying to budget. If this kicks in in January, this is worth and about 40, 45 euro per week. That's brilliant. That's 180 quid a month. Brilliant. That's That's really good. Actually, no, it's not. It's worth that in September, which is great when we get it, but a frustration that you haven't. But it's it also now. then when you speak to the um, Elaine Dunn from the Childcare Federation, she will say then that a lot of people can't actually afford to keep their services open, well, and yeah. that a lot of them are now considering whether or not they're going to be open in eleven months' time when that kicks in. So that'll be grand if it's cheaper, but getting your child a place in mm. one of these childcare facilities is going to be really difficult next year. You've actually touched on something, Gavin, which is actually a big problem with Budget Day being a day, and but with weeks and weeks of build up in the press is that there's an awful lot of spin that happens. There's an awful lot of spin that happens. You can't, in any way, shape or form, say that Roderick O'Gorman delivered a 25% cut again this year in terms of childcare fees with just a little sort of in brackets starting for, in September. of the year. Like, people have to wait a year for that then. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is, it's, it, there's so much, when, you, when all your coverage of the budget is completely reliant on leaks and we all depend on leaks yeah. and it's all good stuff. Um, I should say, by the way, for the record, I don't mean to cut you off mid-flow, but like some of it is not just yeah. somebody approaching you with like a thing in hand saying, here, would you like some information? It does require journalists to try and go and solicit it and mm-hmm. to eke it out of people, just mm-hmm. for the record. because Well, then they should, they should, more than just eking out the information, eking out information that said minister and said minister's advisors want put out there, as opposed well, to the actual information mm-hmm. that probably require a little bit more work. Um, but yeah, I don't think that's particularly good. I think the whole... Budget day itself is antiquated at this point in time, which is why I think it's very interesting that you're having the individual parties going out with their social media crews to try and drive it that yeah. way. But this is now the thing is like, we need to convince people that they're getting what they want. Mm. And like a lot of people, again, happy with what they got. But there's so much when there's so much of the budget which is out beforehand, the budget day itself and the whole crack about here's the two speeches and the response. Then you have your buzzwells and you have your ministerial interviews on every single radio station, every single TV station. And then you have the phone in the next day. Needs a shake up. I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like. It doesn't feel like it serves really good Next discussion. Because actually, you know, one, one point, another point on it is that we have the traditional thing as well of who are the winners and the losers of the budget. What is that? That isn't policy discussion. 
that doesn't help anybody in terms of actually figuring it out. It's all, it's, everything is put into a yay, boo, yes, no, who wins, who loses. We uh, need more rational and proper discussion. I was going to propose to shake it up next year, we would invite Michael McGrath, Pascal on who just to announce the budget here in the group chat, just to mix it up, just to have... <laughs> don't so be doing that either. You mentioned what, like, what they were going to do um, about the other, the underlying crises. I actually think that in six months' time, if cost of living abates, and everyone does hope that in the next six or nine months that the cost, cost of living... Is cost of living abating in six months? Well, the inflation will have No one can tell you that. No one can tell you that for sure. But I mean, yeah. The European Central Bank thinks that it might, that what they've done now will help it to ease off. They don't need to in- increase interest rates so that it might come back to a, a normal level or a normalized level next year. If you get over that and if people can, broadly speaking, manage to get by with the expenses that they face, you're then back to, well, the other crises that any government is ever going to face, which is uh, at present housing and, and health. The housing plan, the, the government's targets for housing delivery today are no different than they were at the start of the week. The budget mm. literally entailed, um, you know, giving enough money to meet the commitments of the Housing for All plan, which many people, particularly obviously those in the opposition, don't believe is ambitious enough to deal with the country's housing shortages. And on the health side, yes, it's a budget of £22.5 the biggest health budget ever in the history of the state. Um, but £100 million of that, £100 million is new measures. And the amount set aside for demographics, because the population is growing and ageing, is £700 million. Most analysts don't believe that 700 million is actually enough yeah. to address the rising and uh, aging population of Ireland. And so therefore, the amount that's been set aside, not alone is it basically just a standstill, it may not even be enough to stand still, which when you're trying to add more capacity and deal with longstanding structural issues is really not going to make a dent at all. No, it isn't. And I think, I mean, health is so interesting. The ministers this morning were saying, look, we'll have to come back and look at health later on in the year before the end of the calendar year. But health. Well, they normally do a full-on health announcement in kind of late November, early December anyway, don't they? It's the... Oh, the bailout announcement. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's yeah. usually the... No, it's the... What's the term they use for it? It's the like annual... Supplementary estimate. No, it's the annual... Oh, the service plan. The service plan. Yeah. The service plan mm. is normally out kind yeah. of... It's well, late the HSE November. will almost certainly be turning around now and saying the service plan is not enough to deliver the services. So... See how that goes. Every year I go to that service plan announcement and I yeah. say, they go, oh, we're going to hire all these people. And I'm like, do you actually have enough people to do all this? Because okay. the plan is always really ambitious, but there's never enough bodies to deliver it. Ambition is, well, like, I, I, I think it's actually a lack of ambition, which is actually almost taking place at this point in time, because you have, again, a standing still sort of situation with the health budget. There's a feeling among some people in politics in the two government parties that electorally wise, if you want to, t- to play the politics game, which I actually don't think we should be playing too much on it, Stephen Donnelly's been thrown under the bus on this, mm. that Stephen Donnelly uh, and Robert Watt, remember Robert Watt, there was a whole controversy we had during COVID about him putting into health to try and push things on mm. into a, we're going to balance the books here. That experiment has completely failed because it's run away and run away again. Mm-hmm. It'll never stop. Yeah. If you've got ideas for how to mix up budget coverage, get in touch with all of our socials. Let us know. Uh, other news of the week it's coming home Dalyman Park regrettably not included among the venues for Euro 2028 Richard much to your personal chagrin I never said it should be but anyway yeah (laughs) (laughs) I was just trying to project I'm I'm disappointed that Park Talton isn't among the venues Um, there's an interesting question as to whether the legacy of, of Ireland the Republic of Ireland hosting Euro 2028 will be that we will have paid for the redevelopment of a GA ground in Belfast uh, but that whether it'll actually mean anything for the domestic game or whether there's any kind of upshot to the grassroots yeah, I suppose so. I suppose that's a question. Um, I just think it's very interesting. I mean, there's two questions about, well, we're finally hosting a major um, football tournament, mm-hmm. which, you know, one of the most watched sporting events anywhere, as you say, in the world. Um, Caseman Park in Belfast is something to watch out for. This is what I'm going to say on this, is just watch out for because it's been a politically very sensitive mm. topic. It's all mired in the usual 
us versus them thing in the north. Yeah. Whether or not it actually does host games is going to be inter- in something to watch. It could be an amazing project, but it would also be hugely embarrassing for Northern Ireland if they're the only one of the five countries involved yeah. to not Just host a game host. because mm. of bitter politics uh, between unionists and nationalist politicians. The other point is we might be hosting the party, but not actually be involved ourselves. We actually have to do the job <laughs> of qualifying, which is actually incredibly difficult for oh Ireland gosh. at this point in time. So, yeah, great stuff happening across the board. The FAI is delighted, even though. Uh, a lot of Bose fans are very annoyed because they <laughs> mucked up the uh, ticket release for the FAI Cup. Oh, final. yeah. So what's uh, going on with that? So that that's just a Ticketmaster general sale thing, and it was the usual. It was meant to be members shambles. and whatnot to get your spot in the singing section for yeah. the FAI Cup final. So it might it actually is probably more a Ticketmaster thing because Ticketmaster, as we all know, is you know mm. checkered record at this point in time. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm not not where I want to be for the FAI Cup final. I might might be able to fix it at some point. Alas, uh, we're none of us are where we technically wanted to be for the Rugby World Cup because we all hoped that it would actually be in Ireland at some point. That was supposed to be the big tournament. That we we're going to have but nonetheless yeah. we are facing the All Blacks in the Stade de France on Saturday night with a space in the World Cup semi-final at stake live and exclusive of Virgin Media 1 by the way I've been loving the Rugby World Cup I'm going to say it I love it it's absolutely brilliant it's, and like given the fact that I'm not really yeah. let's be honest it's going sport, on a massively. long at this stage no it's not we're so brilliant. used to things so being good. done and dusted in a month like this is the sixth no, weekend of it it's just bringing joy to my heart every week I love it I'm really enjoying the Rugby World Cup I loved the match on Saturday I feel like it's an occasion every time there's a match on there's a vibe you know I'm loving it yeah it's really good Richard you in it? Um, have they won you over? Are you part of the hashtag team of us? No, I hope, I hope everybody enjoys the game on Saturday. Saturday night. Yeah, Saturday yeah. night on Virgin Media. I hope, um, yeah, I hope everybody enjoys it. It's been interesting. Uh, and this is obviously, in a sporting sense, this is where the cliff edge really, which Ireland has, you mm-hmm. know, fallen over so many times in terms yeah. of Rugby World Cups, never getting past the quarterfinal. And then you have a softer semi-final. Am I jinxing it? That might, that <laughs> might be jinxing it because I have this absolutely petrifying fear. And even Dan, the producer, is talking to my ear saying that like we're, we're already jinxing it by presuming that we might win the quarterfinal. And then should the semi-final is a pushover. Sure sure I, think, I do find it funny when you meet people and you're like, do you think we're going to win it? No one wants to answer that question. Everyone's like, don't even, people are like, yeah. don't ask that question. Don't be so uncool. I know don't a lot of people question. are talking openly about the final already. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, a, yeah. a lot of the rugby don't fans I know uh, are all talking about the final already, which I feel is not good. Uh, it's not good juju as they say. Yeah. What well, I will say paid to pay a compliment to our colleague I think Joe Malloy is doing a great job actually hosting the commentary and everything I think it's been the coverage has been really good actually I really enjoy Rob Tommy Carney. Martin is doing a great Tommy job. Martin's amazing. Yeah. Tommy Owen Martin. Kelly on cameras and Rona Mac all the lads um, but no genuinely actually not just yeah. they're our friends it's I actually really do think the coverage is really good yeah. I've really enjoyed Rob Carney on the panel as well I think he's great so uh, yeah I've enjoyed it so far. Uh, the last game against Scotland was the most watched broadcast ever in the history of this channel and it's a record that we hope we will break uh, next Saturday night so do us a favour and tune in and help us make a little bit of history. Uh, we are completely out of time uh, are we sharing that history <laughs> claiming, claiming it's, like, it's like a rec- world record thing look we have to wrap up uh, Zara King thank you thank you Richard Chambers thank you thanks Gav thank you to uh, Tommy to Ross to producer Dan to everybody uh, Sinead on the floor and everybody who's been part of the show we'll see you again next week uh, goodbye bye bye, bye.